Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As you turn there, we just finished a sermon series on the church. We spent nine weeks at looking at some specific things about the church. And if you remember, right in the middle, we spent some time on the concept of biblical eldership and God's provision for churches to be led by elders. And we saw very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 5 that there are two shepherds that are involved in the church. Do you remember that? There's two types of shepherds. There are under-shepherds, and there's a chief shepherd. And the chief shepherd, of course, is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let me just refresh you by reading. You stay in Matthew 5. Let me read for you 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's where we get the concept that elders in the church are under shepherds, Because there's a chief shepherd that will appear one day, and we are working on his behalf in certain ways within the church. So this morning, as one of the under-shepherds here at Rocky Point, oh, we're going to point you to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say this. This whole Bible is the words of the chief shepherd. All Scripture is God-breathed, and Jesus is God. So this is the teachings and the words of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. But this morning, we're going to really drill down, and we're going to get into Matthew 5 through 7, and we're going to show you what our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, proclaimed to us in this most excellent sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, I'm going to show you what I believe to be the greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount, three chapters. I'm going to point you to the greatest preacher that ever preached, Jesus Christ, God himself. We're going to look at the context of this sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples in the crowds. And then we're going to look at one key truth that's embedded throughout the book of Matthew and really embedded in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at those four things. And let's jump right in first. And I want to show you, I want to show you this morning how this is the greatest sermon ever preached. And I hope when you hear this, you'll agree with me and you'll be fired up to come Sunday after Sunday and hear from Christ. First of all, this passage of Scripture, Matthew 5 through 7, is perhaps the most beloved passage of Scripture for the church. Now, we could, we could debate that all day long. I kind of like John 14 through 17 myself, but I really like the Sermon on the Mount as well. I think they're equal for me. But this is a very cherished block of Scripture for the church and for Christians. And I'll tell you this, it's even widely admired by the secular world. There are teachings in the Sermon on the Mount that non-believers in our world can quote to you 
It's tragic they don't do it in the name of Christ. But this sermon is so popular in the culture that there are things that come out of here, like the golden rule, for instance. It's embedded right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody knows the golden rule, right? Maybe. And so, (laughs) thank you. And so we have here a block of Scripture that the church and the non-churched world knows and embraces so that the impact of this sermon, the reach of this sermon is wide and large. Let me give you an inventory. You can thumb through it with me if you want these three chapters. Let me give you an inventory, show you the scope and the range of what Jesus proclaims in this sermon. First, we have the Beatitudes, and there we see what it what it takes to be blessed and what a blessed person gets. And we like what we read there until we get down to that persecution issue, right? That's a tough one. So we see the Beatitudes. We see this, this encouragement to embrace persecution. Then we see that we are salt in the world. We are light to the world. We see that Christ fulfills the law, a very important truth that's embedded in the early parts of this sermon. We see that Jesus teaches us about anger. Ooh, we see that we're talked to, told about lust and what lust really is. We're warned about divorce. We're warned about taking oaths. We're called to not retaliate. And then we're told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And then we see some teachings on giving and praying and fasting. We see that we're told to guard our treasures and make sure that we invest treasures in heaven and not in earth. We're called to not be anxious, something we all are tempted to struggle with. And then we're told to not judge one another. There's the golden rule in chapter 7. And then we see that trees bear fruit, and you will know a tree by its fruit. And then we see throughout this sermon a lot of teachings on hell, a very real place that is being discounted in this day and age. And then lastly, we see the famous build your house on the rock, not on the sand, Our culture even identifies with the tenets of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a widely held sermon and widely regarded. But we are called to do more than just love the Sermon on the Mount. And we're called to do more than admire the Sermon on the Mount. It it cannot stop there. We need to apply the Sermon on the Mount to our lives. Said a better way, we need to live We need to live what Jesus Christ proclaims in this sermon. And I'm going to tell you that there are three common responses to the Sermon on the Mount. And we need to make sure that we only have one response. One response is that as we read through this, if your right hand causes you sin, cut it off and throw it away. Uh, Turn the other cheek. If someone slaps you on the left cheek, turn to them the right cheek. Um... Some people can come up to the Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, I got that, I can do that. I'll just discipline myself and I'll, I'll dick, stick my nose in these pages and I will do what they say and everything will be all right. And I'm going to tell you that is impossible. It is impossible to live out everything that Christ calls us to live out here in our flesh. The other response is on the other extreme. And people can read this and get so discouraged saying, that is absolutely impossible. I can't do that. There's no hope. I give up. Close the Bible. I'm going to leave it alone, and I'm not coming back to it. That's the wrong response, too. The third response is, I need Jesus Christ. And the only way that I can live out Jesus' teaching here is to be in Him through faith, 
Because he did fulfill every single thing that he proclaims in the Sermon on the Mount. He did it to the letter, to perfection. And he is my conduit. He is my way to God the Father. And so I am going to latch on to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to strive as hard as I can to live these out. And I'm going to plead with him to enable me to live this out. And I'm going to worship him by adhering to the teachings in this sermon. And when I fail, and we will, I'm going to repent quickly. Ask him to forgive me. And ask him to pick me up and give me strength to keep on going until he comes again. That's how we are to use the Sermon on the Mount. We can't do it. It's not impossible. It is able to be done in the strength of Christ who did it. And so we are going to be so Christ-centered as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're not going to look at some moral actions that we need to be about because we can't fulfill those. We are going to be about worshiping Christ by believing in Him and worshiping Him by adhering to His teachings. And so the tenets of truth in this passage cannot be lived out in the flesh. We will all fail miserably. If we do this apart from Christ. All right. So there's the sermon in a nutshell. Second thing I want to share with you is I want to show you that this is from the greatest preacher who ever preached. Jesus Christ proclaimed this word. And Jesus Christ is the greatest because he is himself the word of God. And any preacher worth his salt is proclaiming to people the word of God. Jesus proclaimed the word of God in word and in action. And we see here in the Sermon on the Mount his words and the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Jesus was a forerunner to Moses, or, or rather Moses was a forerunner to Jesus. Had that backwards. Moses prepares the way in certain circumstances to show us Jesus Christ. Let me just walk you through a, a synopsis of Old Testament history here in Moses' life. Remember Moses. Moses is born in Egypt while Israel is in captivity, right? And Moses, when he was born, there was a decree by Pharaoh that said, we're going to kill every male Israelite child that's born because the Israelite population is getting out of hand. And we're going to do some population control, so we're going to kill every male baby the minute he's born. And he ordered the midwives to kill him when the babies dropped. And we know the story they didn't. We also know that Moses was put into a basket and pushed out in the river, right? And so he was delivered from this decree to kill all male children. Well, Jesus experienced the same persecution. When Jesus was born, Herod made a proclamation because he feared of the Messiah, and the wise man told him they came to see this Messiah. So Herod declares, just like Pharaoh in Moses' day, I want every two-year-old male killed. We got to snuff out the Messiah. And so like Moses, Jesus is delivered. Interestingly enough, he's delivered into Egypt when Moses was already in Egypt. And so Jesus is the one that Moses points to in that scenario. Secondly, when Moses has come down off of the mountain for the Ten Commandments, he finds that the Israelites have made a golden calf. What did Moses do at that point? God said, stand aside, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start all over with you. And Moses prays on behalf of all of the Israelites and asks God to keep his hand off of them and to deliver them through this. Well, last Sunday, 
we see that Jesus Christ in John 17, just like Moses, prays for the people of God. He prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He prays, and I pray not only for these, but also for those that will believe in me through their word. And so Jesus prays and intercedes to God the Father on behalf of his people, just as Moses long ago prayed to God and interceded on behalf of the Israelites in their sin. Number three, Moses was a forerunner to Jesus in that Moses led the captives out of the bondage of Egypt through the Red Sea. The Israelites were desperate. They needed to be delivered from bondage. They were enslaved, and God raised up Moses to be the deliverer of those people. And I will tell you this morning that Jesus Christ was sent by God to this earth to live the life that we've lived, to experience the temptations that we've experienced, yet he never fell. And Jesus Christ, in his death and his burial and his resurrection, when we believe in him in those substitutionary acts on our behalf, he leads us out of captivity. He leads us out of bondage, just like Moses led Israel out of Egypt. So Jesus is a greater Moses. Moses points us to Jesus. What's that all have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Listen to the last one. Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law of God. And a cloud and fire came down on that mountain, and God wrote those Ten Commandments, and God gave Moses the law. In the same way, Jesus goes up on a mount. And he doesn't give us the law. He reinterprets the law. He intensifies the law, if you will. Look at Matthew 5. Look at Matthew 5, verse 21. And here's an example. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. That's what was said of old by Moses. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, so now Jesus is on his mount, and he's saying, Moses said you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Wow. So Jesus takes the Old Testament law, and he drives it where? He doesn't abolish it, he says. He drives it deeper, and it penetrates deeper into our heart. And he says that we're not even to be angry with someone because that is murderous in our heart. So this is Jesus' Mount Sinai experience, if you will. He's telling us to intensify this and draw this law, these Ten Commandments, not to mere physical actions, but to also show that they are our hearts and our hearts are right, and we will not murder in our hearts. And if you look from here down, look, look next in, in verse 27 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, look at 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife. But I say to you, verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. Verse 34, but I say to you, and we could go on and on through the next couple of paragraphs. So Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is speaking the word of God to us as Moses did in the Ten Commandments. But Jesus is supreme because, guess what? 
Matthew 5.17 says that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. We'll come back to that point in a moment. I want you to turn. I want you to stay right there. Keep your finger in, in Matthew 5. I want you to go to Deuteronomy back in the Old Testament. Fifth book of the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. I think we've spent some time on this passage before. I know we have on Sunday nights. Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. We're in the context here of I'm showing you how Jesus Christ is the greatest preacher who ever preached. And he is greater than Moses. Watch this. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. He's speaking to Moses. I will raise up a prophet from them like you, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to them all that I command him. So God here says to Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. That prophet is Jesus Christ. He says that prophet will be an Israelite from among their brothers, is what he says. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is an Israelite. He is one of these brothers. And thirdly, he will put his words in his mouth, and he will speak all that I command. So this prophet that will be raised up is going to speak with divine authority, and the people were obligated to obey what he said. That is Jesus Christ. He is the greatest Ever. Hebrews 4 says Jesus is greater than Moses. Hebrews 1 says Jesus is greater than the angels. And so here we have a sign here of the true, best, and greatest preacher ever. Just listen to these two verses. Here's Jesus in John 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So there's the authority that Jesus is claiming to speak from, and that's the Deuteronomy 18. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus says it in John. That's what I'm doing. Matthew 7. Turn back over to the book of Matthew. Hopefully you kept your place. Look in chapter 7. Verse 28. This is how we close the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Oh, I pray that we will all, as we encounter the Sermon on the Mount, I pray that we will all walk away from here on Sunday mornings going, wow, Jesus spoke with authority because he's the greatest preacher that ever preached. And he preached the greatest sermon that was ever delivered because he spoke as God because he is God. So my goal is to point you to this great preacher as we go through this great sermon and to show you the authority that Jesus Christ spoke from. So the true sign of a great preacher is that that preacher lives out what he preaches. And that goes for under-shepherds as well. But you want a true mark of a great, excellent preacher. You will look at his life and see that his life 
lived out what he proclaimed. In Matthew 5, 17 says this, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the very fact that Jesus fulfilled all of the law and all of the prophets, the entire Old Testament, says he's the greatest preacher that ever lived and ever stood before a people. Now, there's three responses. I said there's three responses to this sermon, right? Total despair, arrogant cockiness that I can do this, or a desperation for Jesus Christ to enable me to do this, which is the right one. Now there's three responses to this greatest preacher ever. I like what C.S. Lewis says. The three responses that you can have to Jesus Christ are, number one, he's a liar. And there are people in this world that proclaim Jesus to be a liar. Number two, you can claim that he's a lunatic. And many, the Pharisees accused him of being a liar and they accused him of being a lunatic, didn't they? Many times they said, you must be possessed by a demon. Okay, that's saying you're a lunatic. But the third response is this. When you hear Jesus' teaching, when you see Jesus in action, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic. Your response is, my Lord and my God. Which is exactly what Thomas said to Jesus. Remember Thomas? Jesus has been raised from the dead. Thomas says, I will not believe in this resurrection, even though Jesus told of it three times in advance, right? I will not believe in this resurrection until I touch the nail marks and put my hand in his side. And Jesus comes to him and says, hey, here we go. Check it out. And Thomas's response in that moment of worship is, you're not a liar, you're not a lunatic, you are my Lord and you are my God. And he bowed and worshiped him. And I pray that that will be our response. My response in the privacy of my study as I prepare to preach through these sections of this sermon, I pray, Lord, help me to say, my Lord and my God, to this Christ that I encounter in my study. And I pray that as you sit through these sermons, and I pray as you read through the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks that we're coming in between Sundays, that you would walk away going, wow, he is not a lunatic. He certainly is not a liar. He is the Lord, and he is my God. I pray that that's what will happen as a result of us going through this series. So Jesus Christ is the greatest preacher who ever preached. He is the Lord. He is God. Now, let's look at the context of this sermon. And I want to show you a couple of things that are going on in the scriptures here when Matthew writes about Christ. First of all, I want to show you that Matthew, um, probably more than any other writer of a book in the Bible, uses what I'm going to call bookends. And you can see these bookend sentences throughout the Gospel of Matthew. There's five main areas of teaching in, in Matthew's Gospel. We're not going to look at all five, but I want to show you how Matthew frames his writing into sections with bookends. The first one, you're in Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at the first one. We're going to look at the most narrow bookend that he uses. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. We're in the Beatitudes. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now go down to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, frames in for us a specific area of teaching in Matthew's gospel that he was inspired to write. 
And we call that area the Beatitudes. And there's eight Beatitudes. And next Sunday, we're going to look at three of those. Okay? So there you see real immediate in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, two bookends that are used to frame out an area of teaching. Let's look at a little bit wider range. Look up at Matthew 5, 1. In Matthew 5, 1, we see that Matthew says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now turn over to Matthew 8, 1. 8, 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So there's another bookend. Okay? Now let's look at one more, a little bit wider view. Let's go to Matthew 4, one page back. Matthew 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now turn over to Matthew 9, verse 35. Matthew 9:35 And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And then he kind of leaves. So in this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4:23, through that passage there in Matthew 9 at the end of chapter 9, we see Jesus's life and teaching in action. We see him teaching in the Sermon on the Mount right after he had been healing people. Okay, then he goes and teaches for a moment. Then he comes down off of the mountain and he goes back to healing people again. And that's the context that we're in when we see this Sermon on the Mount. And that's how we get these crowds that are gathering around Jesus to hear his teaching. He's drawn them in with his miracles of healing. And now they listen to him attentively. And then he's going to take them back out and he's going to show them himself at work again. That's the context that we're in. And so now I want to ask the question, as we understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount, who is the audience of this sermon? Look at verse Matthew 5, 1 again. And we'll stay there for the rest of the way, I think. In Matthew 5, 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Who is them? Is that the crowds or is that the disciples? Some say disciples, some say crowds, okay? You know I, I do this. I ask these trick questions a lot, right? What's, what's the common answer? Yes or both, okay? But let's drill in a little bit further here. We do see an argument, a good argument, that this is the disciples because the them is directly pointing back to the disciples in the passage. But how about this? Two pages over in Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Sounds like he's teaching to the crowds, doesn't it? Okay, great argument could be made for that. And I do think it is fair to say that he's teaching both the inner circle of his followers, the disciples. And by the way, this is not the 12, okay? This is all people who are following Jesus. This is a multitude of disciples that he's teaching. And then there's a greater ring of crowd that's around the disciples. And I think it's fair to say he's teaching in such a way that both audiences are his target, okay? 
But he's really honed in, I believe, on his disciples. And, and we see in the context in this sermon that it's primarily to those who are already following him. And let me give you some examples. Number one, Jesus tells in, in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you falsely on my account. Those are his followers that he's speaking to there. The crowds are not persecuted on behalf of Jesus Christ because they're not yet following him. And so he is speaking to his disciples when he says things like this. He, he, the crowds are not salt of the earth and light of the world. The believers in Jesus Christ are lights in the world. And so he's not speaking to the crowds there, it would seem. He's speaking to his disciples. Jesus teaches over in 5.16. Look at that. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The crowds are not yet calling God Father. It's the disciples that reverence God as Father. And then Jesus clearly assumes that he's talking to his followers because over in Matthew 6, he says, And when you pray, pray like this. And when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And when you fast... So he's saying, when you, this is something that followers of Christ are doing. This isn't what the crowds are doing. They're not praying to the Father. They're not giving alms to the poor. They're not fasting for the sake of Jesus Christ. So I would say in that context, it seems clear that he's immediately speaking to his disciples. Now, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand this or we're going to miss it as we go through this. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of do's and don'ts to get into the kingdom of heaven. This is not a laundry list, and if you do these things, everything will be good, and you'll be right with me and my Father. No, the Sermon on the Mount is a description of what the Christian life should look like. So you don't do this to become a Christian. You read this and say, does this look like me, and is this evidence that I'm the bearing the fruit of the Christian life? So it's descriptive of Christian life, not prescriptive of how you get into the kingdom. And so here's what I would say for us. Why did I, why did I go to all of that labor? Here's why. I think it matters that we understand who's being taught here in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the grand scheme of things, it is both, but in the most immediate, it is the disciples. And that's exactly what's happening here in this room this morning. We are no different than the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Because there are no doubt people in this room that profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you pray to Him and through Him. And you give to Him and for Him. And you fast and you mourn and you repent of your sins and you call His Father your Father. And you've built your house on His rock instead of the sand of the world. Right? And so He is here saying, I want to encourage you when you're persecuted that you're persecuted on my sake and your reward in heaven is great. That's encouraging to us. But it's also that he's speaking to those in this room that are not followers of Jesus Christ yet. And I'm glad you're here and you are welcome to sit through every one of these because Jesus Christ is speaking to you and by showing you what the Christian life looks like, it may be how he draws you into his kingdom. But this is not a list of do's and don'ts. Don't get legalistic with this and say, if I just go down that narrow thing and do those, five, those three chapters, I'm in. No, it's a relationship 
with Jesus Christ. And you can't do the things that are written in this passage without Christ in your heart. It's a truth. And so listen, come, and disciples, listen and worship. Followers of Christ, listen and worship as you sit at the feet of Jesus Christ as he teaches us life in the kingdom. And there's the last point I want to make right now. There is a huge truth that's running throughout this passage of Scripture. Let me start larger. In the book of Matthew, Matthew uses a phrase like no other gospel writer uses. He uses a phrase, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. You'll see it everywhere. And it's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. You'll see that kind of phrases uses used throughout the book of Matthew. In fact, 32 times Matthew references the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. 32 times. That's more than any other book in the Bible combined. So this is a big issue in Matthew's writing. Now, when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, it's used eight times in three chapters. So it's very, very concentrated right here in the Sermon on the Mount. And we need to understand what the kingdom of heaven is so that we don't just gloss over these words as we hit them each week in our sermons. So I want to show you first in the book of Mark. Turn to the first chapter of Mark. Yes, today is Bible Drill Sunday. Okay? We don't do this often. I love hearing pages in the Bible turn in the service. But I want to show you the kingdom of heaven in the Bible so that we understand what it means when we hit these phrases in the Sermon on the Mount. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's Jesus talking there. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Okay? So the arrival of the kingdom is announced by Christ. Matthew 4. I hope you always keep your thumb in the, in the Sermon on the Mount section. Matthew 4.23. Matthew writes this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom is at hand, and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so we can say from this, the gospel, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is here. Or can we? Does it feel like we're living in the kingdom of heaven? Hmm. Tension. I hate tension. <laughs> it doesn't feel like we live in the kingdom of heaven right now. There's days, there's moments that we say, ah, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But there's a lot of times where we're saying, come, Lord Jesus, would you come back and deliver us from this kingdom of the earth? Well, Matthew repeatedly sets up a contrast between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of, of heaven. There's a heavenly realm, and throughout the book of Matthew, it represents God and his ways, okay? And then there's this earthly realm that Matthew will refer to, and it represents man in his ways. And we are living in this, aren't we? We feel, we know God in his ways sometimes, maybe often, but we know the ways of the earth too, and we're under the baggage of it, and we're just dragging it around. And so we're kind of living in two realms right now. And Matthew shows us that there is a great difference between these two realms. 
And the difference first is found in the occupants. Christians, disciples, live in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not will be in the future. Theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven, those who are poor in spirit. We're going to look next week at poor in spirit, but it's someone who realizes spiritually that we are bankrupt and we need God to deliver us spiritually from our sinful ways. And when we realize that, ours is the kingdom of heaven right now and forevermore. Eternity starts right now. But Matthew also shows that there's tension between these two realms. And this tension is between God's ways and man's ways. And this tension then is between God and man. There's tension there. And Jesus Christ relieves the tension between God and man. It's the only way it's relieved. Just listen to this one, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There's tension. We live in our thoughts and ways. God exists in his thoughts and ways, and his are higher than ours. So we have these two realms, these two kingdoms that are in tension with one another. Let me just show you in the Sermon on the Mount some examples of this tension. First of all, look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 through 10. Just look at this. In the Beatitudes, the blessed ones are the exact opposite of what the world would aspire to. Okay? Poor in spirit. Meek. Those who mourn. Those who are hungry for righteousness. The world doesn't want anything to do with that. Are you kidding me? I don't want to be meek. Meek's for wimps. I'm a John Wayne man. Right? So we have a battle between these two kingdom mindsets. Because in the kingdom of heaven, we're poor in spirit, we're meek, and we mourn. The kingdom of this earth, we're arrogant. We're bold and, and proud. And we're rejoicing. We're not mourning. What are we mourning for? We'll look at that next Sunday. Second, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Is that the way of the world? No way. No way. I even battle with that during the week. So we're always in this tension. Number three, Jesus says we are to turn the other cheek when we're struck on the left side. That's not our default response, is it? The kingdom of the world says retaliate and punch them back. Kingdom of heaven says don't go there. We are to pray in private, give in private, fast in private, so that no one will see our good works. But our Father who sees in secret will see them. But the world says, showtime, look at me, I need somebody to praise me right now. Okay? So the Sermon on the Mount is so counter cultural because it's in the kingdom of heaven that jesus is speaking from not the kingdom of this earth if you left the uh the sermon on the mount and you looked at jesus's parables just listen to this the parables of the kingdom tell us that debtors are freely forgiven we don't do that in the world do we it tells us that the smallest seed produces the biggest tree right the smallest makes the biggest and it tells us that the last hired worker gets the same wage as the first hired guy hired early in the morning. 
Okay? No, I'm due more because I worked more. So everything about Jesus' teaching, everything about the kingdom of heaven is contrary to the ways of the world that we live in. It's contrary. So we need to understand this picture of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is describing here. Here's three more points about the kingdom of heaven that utterly befuddle mankind. The king of this kingdom rode into town on a donkey with twelve, with an army of twelve disciples who were scattered, by the way, the night that he was betrayed. And the people were singing to him, Hosanna, which means God save us, on that Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. But by Friday, those crowds were yelling, crucify him. That's the kingdom of heaven coming in. Jesus riding on a donkey, not yet on a white stallion. And then we see this king He is beaten. He is stripped naked. He is nailed to a cross with rusty spikes. And there he dies before his mother. That's the kingdom of heaven. But the world looks at that and says, that is foolishness. That is absurd. The kingdom of heaven, that is the glorious, greatest good news you'll ever find. You know what 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27 says? Just let me read that to you. Came to mind. I think we need to read that based on what I just said. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 is where I'll start. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus Christ was the, and I'm going to use quotes here, foolishness of God in the eyes of the world. Jesus Christ was the weakness of God in the eyes of the world. Jesus Christ was the nothing in the world that brought to shame all the things that are because Jesus Christ is God himself. So, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us, is here. It is now. But I want to introduce a concept to you that's true throughout the Bible. And it's this, and you could write this down somewhere maybe. Already, but not yet. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we need to say it is already here, but it's not yet fully manifested. And I think that's how we understand that we live in in an age where the kingdom has come, but we still feel subject to this worldly kingdom that's beating us down. It's already here. It's It's been inaugurated, but it's not yet been fully consummated. And so when Christ appeared, he inaugurated the kingdom of heaven over which he now reigns and rules. And he, when he died and rose again, the reign of sin and death ended. And Jesus took the reins. And he now reigns in, in his righteousness. And even though the kingdom has come, we still await its full manifestation. And when is that going to be? That's going to be, we have a promise that we're still living for, right? Every other promise in the Bible has happened. But we are waiting for the last one. When Jesus Christ will come again, not on a donkey, but on a white stallion. 
with a sword out of his mouth and he is going to judge the world and he is going to bring together those that are his in the kingdom of heaven and we will dwell with him forever. But those who are not his, he will judge and he will say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. And they will spend eternity separated from him in hell. And so we are right now in this in-between stage where both the kingdom of heaven is here, but it's not yet fully here. And that will happen when Jesus Christ comes again. And when that day happens, we read in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. That's when the kingdom of heaven will be fully in place for all of eternity. So, as we come up to the Sermon on the Mount, here's the question that you should ask as you go through this. Am I an occupant, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, or am I a citizen of the kingdom of this world? And do I understand that my citizenship has eternal implications, eternal effects? God made you and me to exist forever. Our souls are immortal. That's what makes us different than animals and trees and all of the creation. We have been created in God's image, and that means we will exist forever. Which kingdom will you be a citizen of forever? And if you desire the kingdom of heaven, there's only one way, and that's through the greatest preacher who ever preached and the tenets of the greatest sermon he ever delivered. And we're going to show you that in the coming weeks. Let's pray.